Tonight on The Readout. Ms. Hutchison, did White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows ever indicate that he was interested in receiving a presidential pardon related to January 6th? Mr. Meadows did seek that pardon. Yes, ma'am. Whatever Trump did in his effort to overturn the election and take classified documents home with him, there's a good chance Mark Meadows was privy to it. And now he could be playing a pivotal role in the special counsel investigation. Also tonight, major developments in the shooting death of A.J. Owens, the suspect who police say fired through the front door, killing the Florida mother of four, has now been arrested. And for the first time, we're seeing the heartbreaking aftermath of that violence as video shows AJ's son desperately seeking help for his dying mom. But we begin tonight with big developments in the special counsel's investigation into Donald Trump's mishandling of classified documents. New reporting tonight from The Guardian indicates that federal prosecutors formally told Trump's lawyers last week that Trump is a target of the criminal investigation, according to two people briefed on the matter. The Guardian adds that the lawyers were notified before they met on Monday with special counsel Jack Smith at DOJ headquarters, where they made the case that their client should not be indicted. Trump is making his own social media pleas, posting a new post hours ago, quoting quoting him. He says, no one has told me I'm being indicted and I shouldn't be because I've done nothing wrong. There's also new reporting today from The Washington Post indicating that Justice Department prosecutors are planning to bring a significant portion of any charges to a federal court in southern Florida, according to people familiar with the matter and who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss internal discussions. Those people said that the legal rationale for such a move is that the bulk of the conduct at issue in the investigation occurred in the Southern District of Florida, in and around Trump's Palm Beach residence and private club, even if much of the investigation, led by special counsel Jack Smith, has been handled by a grand jury in Washington, D.C. The Post adds that approach by prosecutors does not rule out the possibility of some charges, such as perjury or false statements, being filed in Washington. This comes as one of Trump's top aides appeared before a grand jury for nearly an hour in Miami, Florida, this morning. Taylor Budowich, who I'm sure you've never heard of, but who is Trump's former spokesperson and now heads a pro-Trump super PAC, has been part of Trump's shrinking inner circle since he left the White House. Trump's proverbial right-hand man. In such a role, he would likely be aware of many conversations that Trump had related to the classified documents and the investigation. As a spokesperson for Trump, he released statements on the investigation, calling it a witch hunt and representing that Trump did not retain classified records, which, of course, turned out to be untrue. A source tells NBC News that Budowicz was asked about at least one of those statements and now and how he knew that it was the case. And bolstering the case that the DOJ may be looking to bring some of its charges to Florida is who from the DOJ questioned Budowicz. The Guardian is reporting that the Department of Justice's counterintelligence chief, Jay Bratt, led the questioning. Bratt has previously appeared for grand jury proceedings covering the espionage side of the investigation, as opposed to the obstruction side. As The Guardian points out, the previously unreported involvement of Bratt could suggest the questioning could focus on potential Espion Act violations, particularly whether Trump showed off national security documents to people at his Mar-a-Lago resort. 
a recent focus of the investigation. Joining me now is our panel of MSNBC legal analysts, attorney Lisa Rubin, former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance, who is a professor at the University of Alabama School of Law, and former federal prosecutor Paul Butler, who is a professor at Georgetown School of Law. Um, I am among a very well-educated bunch here. I do want to go to you first, Lisa. You're in Miami. Talk about this Budowicz testimony today. Budowicz testimony, Joy, was really fascinating because, as you know, most of our viewers are not familiar with him as a character in this scenario. Taylor Budowicz was Trump's spokesperson and communications director after he left the White House. He is now the head of a pro-Trump super PAC called MAGA Inc., and he took that position in September. But between January of 2021 and September of 2022, Taylor Budowicz was with Trump all of the time. There were very few steps that Trump took that Taylor Budowicz wouldn't have been present for. And as you noted, he made multiple statements with respect to the National Archives' efforts to get classified documents and other presidential documents back in their possession. And then when the investigation morphed into a criminal one, Taylor Budowicz was there again, making a number of statements to press outlets on behalf of the former president. He even accused the FBI of colluding with the Washington Post with respect to its reporting that among the documents Trump retained were ones that implicated the nuclear secrets of foreign nations. We know Taylor Budowicz was in there today for around an hour and as you noted, one of those statements seems to have been at the heart of what prosecutors wanted to know from him, because they know that Trump drafted an initial version of that statement that went much further than what was ultimately released. And that initial version essentially said, I've returned every classified document that I ever had in my possession. And Budowicz went back to Trump advisors and lawyers and consulted with them, and they determined that statement could not see the light of day. And that's what prosecutors wanted to know from Taylor Budowicz today. What did you know about the real scope of what Trump had at the time that that statement went out? And why didn't you let it go out the way the former president wanted it to? And so, Paul, let me come to you on this, because so we now know that Taylor Budowicz testified uh, and Susan, Lisa just very brilliantly explains like sort of why that's important, right? That this is about whether or not they were willing to put out a lie about whether they return the classified documents. These grand juries have also talked with 20 Secret Service agents. They're talking with people who have daily conversations or at least privy to the things that Trump is saying. So you take all of that. um, I think everyone is sort of agreeing that it feels like something is going to happen and it'll happen in Florida. Um, Talk about that for a minute. Let's just say this happens in Florida. This is Trump country. What would be the contours of trying to prosecute the former president in the state of Florida? So DOJ regulations say prosecution has to happen where the crime happened. So for espionage, if it's retaining documents, Trump committed that crime allegedly in Florida. If it's holding on to documents or uh, Trump committed that crime in the District of Columbia, This is a decision that the prosecutor would have come to very reluctantly. They would much prefer a D.C. jury because of the jury pool and also because judges in D.C. have more experience dealing with national security cases. And and I'll just put up the the election results. Uh, Joe Biden, 92.1 to 5.4 over Donald Trump uh, in 2020. Florida went 47.9 for Biden, 51.2 percent for Trump. It is definitely Trump, uh, Trump, Trump country. So that would be a difficulty in terms of 
doing it, having a jury there. Yeah. Now, of course, in the uh, Manhattan rape prosecution, there were reportedly jurors who voted for Trump who still convicted him. And going back to your point about the Secret Service, Joy, I think that's key evidence. Imagine you're a prosecutor and you're investigating someone who has watchers with him 24-7. That's a goldmine. Prosecutors also want to lock in their statements so that Mm -hmm. if one suddenly shows up as a defense witness for President Trump at his possible trial, they don't say anything there that tries to help out the president. Because if they said something different in the grand jury, the prosecutors would ask that famous question, are you lying then or or, or are you lying now? Uh, The Guardian reporting, Joyce, also sort of gets into the idea that if Donald Trump potentially took the documents from Washington, he was still president, that he would have taken them theoretically before he was, you know, moved out, removed out of office physically on the 20th, so that it's more likely that, you know, you can really locate the crime in Florida. And on appeal, that could be an issue if you pick the wrong venue. Um, What do you make of that, that that, that it makes more sense for Florida? But I also want to ask you if prosecutors think this way. If you do it in Florida, it's harder to argue that it's some sort of an attack on Trump because you're doing it in Trump country. Right. So I think all of these things have an element of truth to them. And this whole technical point about whether Trump was still president when he took the documents or not helps us understand that legal prosecutions are innately technical matters. We can all look at what Trump has done. We all know it's wrong. It's awful. The question is, is it unlawful? And that's the very narrow path that prosecutors have to to tread here, because if he was entitled to possess the documents when he took them and the only crime is retention, then venue clearly exists in Florida. You know, it's interesting to note that the solicitor general, the current solicitor general, Elizabeth Preloger, was on the Mueller team. And so she was there when they made these difficult decisions about venue and where to indict Paul Manafort. And they ultimately indicted to, uh, they decided to indict one case in D.C., one case in the Eastern District of Virginia. She would have been very attuned to these issues here because she will have to defend any convictions on appeal. And getting venue wrong is fatal for federal yeah. prosecutors. If you get it wrong, there's no do-over. So laying venue in Florida, where, as you point out, there may not be um, juries that are against Trump, makes sure. a little bit of sense. It's smart legally, but it also gives some integrity to a conviction that's obtained by jurors who may be willing to set aside their personal beliefs follow the facts and the law, and do the right thing. Uh, and Lisa, the, the, the uh, participation of Mr. Bratt is an interesting note. Um, to have somebody who's on the national security side, it seems significant. It does seem significant. Look, Joy, we've known for a while that the principal charges that the Department of Justice has been interested in, irrespective of what particular statute we're looking in, sort of fall in two domains, right? They fall into obstruction of justice on one side and then violation of the Espionage Act on the other. And that has to do with the retention and dissemination of national defense information. It doesn't strictly have to be classified. But Jay Brett's involvement today signals that the department is still looking at espionage charges or potentially other charges that have to do with the retention and dissemination of classified information itself, which is not something the Espionage Act requires. That's not a surprise, yeah. but it's helpful confirmation today. I also want to return to one thing, though, that Paul said, and when he was referring to the E. Jean Carroll civil trial, mm-hmm. there was a juror in that case 
who admitted during jury questioning that he listens to a far-right MAGA podcaster named Tim Pool. And when E. Jean Carroll's lawyers realized that that was what he had said, they tried to get that juror disqualified and excluded from the jury. We learned that after the verdict. The guy ended up staying, but nonetheless, that was a jury that sided with E. Jean Carroll and against Trump, finding that he had not only defamed her, but sexually assaulted her. Now, I recognize that's different in Florida, where you may have an entire jury pool full of people who do things like listen to Tim Pool. But that gives me some more confidence that jurors are willing to really hear out the evidence yeah. and make decisions that might go against their own personal political beliefs. Right. And they're going to be read the statutes. And, and I'm going to come back to you in a second, Paul, but I do want to go to Joyce on this really quick, and then I'll have you uh, weigh in as well. When it comes to the statutes, you know, just my own little minor experience being on uh, a, a grand jury is that people are actually quite diligent, no matter what their belief systems are, when you tell them this is the statute. I want to read something called uh, 18 U.S.C. 793. You all know what that is. I don't. Whoever having unauthorized possession of access to or control over any document relating to the national defense or information related to a national to the national defense, which information the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation willfully communicates, delivers, transmits or attempts to communicate, deliver, transmit to any person not entitled to receive it or willfully retains the same and fails to deliver it to the officer or employee of the United States entitled to receive it shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 10 years. If that statute is read, Joyce, does that sound like something in theory that Trump could be facing? Well, it does. And you're reading from a portion of the Espionage Act. Despite its frightening sounding name, it covers a wide range of conduct. Everything from uh, holding on to documents that you're not entitled to have to outright selling the United States most precious secrets to foreign countries. So a very broad range um, of conduct. There is good reason to believe that this statute 793E is one of the big focuses of the special counsel's investigation. But here's what we don't know, Joy. Will Trump be charged with retaining documents or will he be charged with disseminating them, with passing them on to other people? That could be a very important aspect of the testimony that the special counsel took from the Secret Service agents who formed Trump's detail. 20 of them were interviewed in the grand jury. And this is intriguing. I'd love to hear Paul's thoughts about this, because as a federal prosecutor, I never had a defendant who was trailed by trained observers, trained witnesses. Secret Service agents are trained as part of their job duties to testify in court. These folks are all trained as observers and witnesses, and they had eyes on Donald Trump 24-7. And so when they are asked questions about whether he disseminated any of these materials to other people, their responses will be authoritative. If those answers are in the affirmative, the president could be facing far more serious charges. And that uh, we're going to call that a tease. And trust me, y'all, we did not plan this. But I had a question for Paul. Uh, Joyce has set him up perfectly to be the first person to go after the break. We are going to thank Lisa Rubin because you're in Florida. We figure you should enjoy the sun. It's because it's not smoggy there. Uh, Lisa Rubin, thank you very much. Joyce and Paul are sticking around because there is still so much to discuss. I have 473 questions and not enough time to ask them all about Trump's increasingly perilous legal position and Mark Meadows role. Because that is where I wanted to go after this. We're going to have the Joyce's question answered first, and then we're going to move on to Mark Meadows when the readout comes back. Give us like two minutes of commercial time and we're back. (laughs) 
With the news that former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows testified to the grand jury in the Justice Department investigation of Donald Trump, it is clear that there is almost no area of his former boss's legal exposure that Meadows wasn't involved with potentially a key witness in both of special counsel Jack Smith's probes, Trump's mishandling of classified documents and the effort to overthrow the 2020 election. He also testified in the Fulton County, Georgia investigation into election interference. On Tuesday, Meadows' lawyer was tight-lipped on details, but told The New York Times, without commenting on whether or not Mr. Meadows has testified before the grand jury or in any other proceeding, Mr. Meadows has maintained a commitment to tell the truth where he has a legal obligation to do so. Joyce Vance and Paul Butler are back with me. Paul, I do want to go to you first to talk about this idea of just having this cornucopia of Secret Service potential evidence. I mean, it's amazing. It, it's a, a treasure trove of evidence. So, again, it's something that the special counsel is, is very happy to have. And thinking about uh, the issue of uh, national security, sure. again, it, why are these um, prosecutors who specialize in international stuff asking questions about Mar Largo? Right. That goes to national security. And Trump's defense is going to be, well, Pence did it when he was vice president. Biden did it when he was vice president. They had documents they weren't supposed to have. What's the difference with me? The difference is, number one, obstruction of justice. Right. They gave the documents back. Yep. Trump didn't. And number two, what did Trump do with these documents? Dissemination, it sounds mild and benign. What that means is that Trump was showing top secret documents right. from the government to people who weren't supposed to see them. Oh, let me make it complicated for you. Uh, this is the CNN reporting we did on the show the other day uh, the, the, that Trump is captured on tape. We haven't heard the tapes talking about a classified document he kept after leaving the White House on the recording. And in response to the story, Trump brings up the document, which he says came from Mark Milley. He's trying to prove Mark Milley really wanted to invade Iran and had a whole plan. Trump told those in the room that if he could show it to people, it would undermine what Milley was saying, the sources said. One source says Trump refers to the document as if it's in front of him. You can hear papers rustling as he's saying it. Um, if he did that, he did it in New Jersey. Meadows is not in, in materially involved in it, but it's involving a book that was being written about Meadows. How does that complicate it? That's evidence of dissemination, in it, theory. It, it's evidence. And so, again, it's possible that Trump could be indicted in various jurisdictions. But again, what's so significant about this evidence is no matter where the jury is, right. if they hear from Trump's own mouth yeah. that he's guilty because he didn't think that these documents were actually unclassified. He knows yeah. he couldn't do that and that he was showing off these documents. How could any American with that evidence find him not guilty? Um, let me play for you Trump's attorney, Joyce, uh, T Tim Parlatore, uh, who will be interviewed tonight uh, by the great Lawrence O'Donnell uh, about what the, what the Trump's legal team's plan was if, in fact, Trump was indicted. Here's what he said. When you left uh, former President Trump's legal team about two weeks ago, there was a plan in place if he were indicted. Oh, sure. Sure. Any, any attorney in that situation would want to have a good plan in place. And when you left in mid-May, it was part of that plan to file motions to dismiss based on allegations of prosecutorial misconduct. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into the specifics of what the plans were, and I'm sure that those plans have evolved since. But, yeah. Prosecutorial misconduct is a big issue that's infecting this case. Prosecutorial misconduct is a big issue affecting this case. How? That's exactly the right question, because the devil is in the details on this one. 
Look, there are cases where prosecutors cross the line. They are very rare in number. But if Trump has serious allegations to bring forward, then I'm sure Justice Department prosecutors would consider them. I think it's more likely, though, that this, this sort of allegation here will just be a continuation of Trump's constant drumbeat of witch hunt against him. And, you know, that resulted in the infamous John Durham investigation, which came up empty-handed after the Justice Department Inspector General found no misconduct in opening the investigation into Russian efforts to influence the outcome of the 2016 election. Durham himself did not indict anyone of significance. Two cases that he took to trial both resulted in acquittals. If yep. this what's, is what Trump wants to call prosecutorial indiscretion, then it's not going anywhere. Let's talk. We've been talking a lot about Florida, Paul. Among the judges in the Southern District of Florida is a lady named Judge Eileen Cannon. <laughs> That's the one who approved Trump's request for a special master following the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago last year. She has an opinion in these matters. What are the chances they end up with her? Uh, zero to none. Again, oh. the, the chief judge of that district will have some say in who, which judge tries this case. I think it's extremely unlikely it would be Judge Cannon. She got reversed twice in yeah. two months by the Court of Appeals. Uh, make it complicated again. Trump ally Steve Bannon um, was subpoenaed by the special counsel. By the special counsel, huh? He has anything to do with documents? What does that tell you? So, again, Steve Bannon, is, his dirty fingerprints, like Mark Meadow, are everywhere. And so the special counsel is interested in what he has to say. He's basically giving him one last shot to come clean about January 6th, especially. And so far, Steve Bannon has been one of these guys, like yeah. Alan Weisselberg, like Paul Manafort, who would rather go to jail and tell the truth about Donald Trump. Let's talk about Mark Meadows real quick, um, Joyce. Um, Cassidy Hutchinson had some damning testimony about him. He seems to be one of the people who thought he might need a pardon. He is involved in all of We're going to put up this. This is all the things he's potentially involved in. The classified documents case, January 6th, Georgia election interference. He's actually the one who set up the call in which Donald Trump said, get me 11,000 X number of votes. Is he somebody who, in theory, is a witness or maybe was a potential target? Where does he stand here? Could he still be someone who might also get indicted because he is seemingly involved in all the things? Right, that's a question that's between Meadows, his lawyers, and the Justice Department. You know, often as a prosecutor, you sit down with an individual who's involved in crime and you give them that choice. Do you wanna be a defendant or do you wanna be a witness? That's the position that Meadows is in. Joy, what I remember hitting me so hard during the January 6th committee hearings was the testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson about Mark Meadows' burning documents in his fireplace, in his White House office. That is a remarkable, remarkable um, piece of incriminatory information about Mark Meadows. Very, very, very quickly, Paul, are there, what are the chances in your mind that there's charges in both, that there's something January 6th here that happens in D.C. and something that happens in Florida. Uh, there certainly could be federal charges in both. I think now DLG seems very focused on the Mar-a-Lago case. Yeah. Fannie Willis is on the job in Georgia, so DLJ may be like, let her take care of January 6th. Fannie's still out there. We're watching. Joyce Vance, Paul Butler, thank you all very much. Coming up, we could have done an hour on this. There was so much stuff. I had more questions. The, the, the number of the day, okay, the number of the day is 10. 
10 contenders for the Republican presidential nomination, including the man whose boss was reportedly okay with him being strung up by an angry mob. We'll be right back. The race for the Republican nomination for president is sort of like a movie with 10 actors vying for different roles. Today, we have two new players, former Vice President Mike Pence and a billionaire from, a, from North Dakota who happens to be a governor that you've never heard of, Doug Burgum. Of course, the leading man in this blockbuster is the guy who spent four years dividing the country by fueling racism, anti-Semitism, anti-LGBT hate and ripping up our democracy and is now looking for a sequel to his dystopian presidency. All the other candidates are offering America some weird interpretation of the Trumpian film without Trump. What's even weirder is that these supporting actors, from Ron DeSantis to Nikki Haley to Tim Scott, are all vying for the lead but won't tell you why Trump is a bad choice. Then there is the original and dutiful supporting actor, Mike Pence, who earlier today announced his own presidential ambitions. His announcement in Iowa was a back-to-the-future version of the Republican Party, complete with a 1980s checklist of goals for the country like trickle-down economics, more guns, more God, and no reproductive rights. We will rebuild our military and make it fitted to the times to defend our freedom in an ever more turbulent world. We will end political correctness at the Pentagon. Here at home, we'll champion lower taxes. We'll extend the historic tax relief of the Trump-Pence administration. We will reject radical propaganda and we will demand respect for our history and religious freedom. As your president, I will appoint men and women to our federal courts who will uphold all the God-given liberties enshrined in our Constitution. The First Amendment, freedom of speech and religion. The Second Amendment, right to keep and bear arms. And they will stand for the sanctity of human life. Yeah, man, the, the 80s called and uh, we told it that we don't want it back. The only Republican candidate, however, who's willing to acknowledge reality is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, a former Trump enabler now viewed as a heretic within his party for stating the obvious. You've watched this show. I mean, to me, this show looks like it's on reruns now. This is like watching Seinfeld. <laughs> right? We've all seen it. And the jokes aren't quite as funny as they were the first time we heard them. Right? Eight years ago, it was amusing. Eight years ago, you were entertained. I forgive you. <laughs> but it ain't funny anymore. It's not amusing anymore. It's not entertaining anymore. It is the last throes of a bitter, angry man who wants power back for himself. I mean, he ain't wrong. But if the past few years have taught us anything, it's that the Republican base cares more for the fantasy than reality. Joining me now is Olivia Troy, co-founder of Mission Democracy and former Homeland Security and counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. And Kurt Bardella, Democratic strategist and contributor to the Los Angeles Times, who I will now re-out as a former Republican. So I'm going to you first. Because, look, look I'll tell you both. When I listened to the Mike Pence thing today, he sounded it sounded like Republican from the 80s, yes. right? So that was, but I want to go to Chris Christie first. I'm going to come back to Pence. Not all heroes wear capes. Sometimes they close bridges. He's a bad guy. He's not, he was an enabler. He did everything wrong when it came to Trump, as did Pence, as did a lot of these guys. But sometimes somebody has to say the thing. Right. He said the thing today. 
Well, I'm reminded of the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> That's kind of how I view Chris Christie, because of all the people, and you showed that list of all the people who are running, declared, or thinking about running, none of them have actually done the job of taking on Donald Trump. They want to talk nonstop about Joe Biden. Guess what? In order to get to Joe Biden, you have to beat Donald Trump. That's the only path that you have. Chris Christie's the only one actually doing that. Let me play Chris Christie saying how the other candidates treat Trump like Voldemort. Listen. <laughs> we have pretenders all around us who want to tell you, pick me. Because I'm kind of like what you picked before. But not quite as crazy. But I don't want to say his name. Because for these other pretenders, he is, for those of you who read the Harry Potter books, like Voldemort. <laughs> he is he who shall not be named. You know, Olivia, inherent in running for president when Donald Trump was the first one in is you saying he shouldn't be president. Yet, as he said, Chris Christie ain't wrong. The only one willing to say Trump shouldn't be president up until up hence today was him. Yeah, absolutely. He's the only one that's willing to take him on. And he's, you know, I, I, I'm actually loving this. I'm not going to lie. I want him to hang I don't hate it. <laughs> I, want, I want him to be the bull in the china shop against him because apparently nobody else will. Certainly my former boss won't. And if you're expecting Mike Pence to take the boxing gloves up, I just don't see it. That's not who he is. And so my dream is to have Trump, DeSantis, Chris Christie, and Pence on the stage because I would love to see that. Uh, first of all, Chris Christie versus Ron DeSantis, that ain't even a fair fight. He would take <laughs> you're right. little Ron. Right, the woke, I gotta fight the woke. Yeah, that ain't gonna work. Uh, but let me tell you, you said that, you, that your former boss won't take on Trump. There was one piece of his presentation today that I said, okay, Mike Pence, he kind of did the thing a little bit. Here he is talking about what he did on January 6th, 2021. The American people deserve to know that on that day, President Trump also demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. Now voters will be faced with the same choice. I chose the Constitution. Let me say from my heart, I understand the disappointment that many still feel about the outcome of the 2020 election. I can relate. I was on the ballot. <laughs> but I had no right to overturn the election. And Kamala Harris will have no right to overturn the election when we beat them in 2024. Okay, you're not going to be president. But, I mean, that's a solid <laughs> argument. And that actually yes. is an argument. Of course, he then went on Fox News and kind of, like, backpedaled and did the opposite of that. But at least he did that there. Can he sustain that? You know, I, that was my favorite part of his speech today, actually, was pointing that out. I also like the fact that he put it out to the voters and said, this is a choice, the Constitution or this guy. And he's speaking to Republican voters, which I think is important because that is really the choice here. It might be Republican voters right. from like 1986, well, though. Well, you're probably <laughs> right. The party that no longer exists, how about? The other thing that no longer exists is sort of intelligent campaigning among Republicans. They literally <laughs> said early voting and absentee voting are criminal, inherently are fraud. Guess what they're doing now? Fox News. The, the Republican National Committee is rolling out a bank your vote nationwide campaign, which is expected to encourage, educate, and activate Republican voters on what? 
early voting uh-huh. and absentee voting. So they finally figured out <laughs> after after losing 2018, after losing the presidency in 2020, after uh, woefully underperforming the returns, that maybe attacking the thing that helped you have a tactical advantage for many. I, you know, I'm old enough to remember as a former Republican Listen, when the absentee vote was our thing. That's what I, we counted on. worked in Democratic campaigns, I'm going to tell you what took us out was Republican absentee voting every single time. But the thing is, they dropped it, and Trump said it's evil. Can they now re-educate a whole sea of of base voters to say, no, 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 this thing we said is evil is good? No, there's going to (laughs) be mass confusion. It's, I mean, again, this is just idiocy to the highest degree when it comes to just basic fundamental one-on-one campaigns and tactics. You know this. You haven't been involved in politics for a long time. You know this. The idea that you would make it harder for your own voters— I mean, never mind the suppression they do to the rest. Yeah. But for your own voters yeah. to send mixed messages, mixed signals, misinformation yeah. is just dumb. And they've passed laws to literally physically make it harder. So they're telling you, okay, do this thing. Okay, we ain't going to make it easy for you, but <laughs> hey, smart. Uh, Mike Pence had like two minutes that, uh, that he did well. We'll give him that. Olivia Troy and Kurt Bardella, thank you both. Coming up, an arrest in the killing of Florida mom, Ajika, Ajika A.J. Owens, whose tragic death has reignited the debate over Florida's deadly stand-your-ground law. We'll be right back. Four days after Ajika A.J. Owens was shot and killed in central Florida after knocking on a neighbor's door, there has finally been an arrest. Susan Louise Lorinch was arrested for manslaughter with a firearm, a first-degree felony punishable by 30 years imprisonment, as well as culpable negligence, battery, and two counts of assault. According to the Marion County Sheriff's Office, Lorenz claimed in police interviews that she acted in self-defense, but she's going to have to prove that at trial. Owen's children had been playing in a field next to an apartment complex where both their family and LaRinch rent. When the kids said LaRinch cursed at them, took the iPad one of them left behind as she ordered them to leave the field, then threw the iPad and a pair of skates at them, hitting one of the kids, all the while using racial slurs. This is according to Ben Crump, who is representing the Owens family. Owens, a mother of four, knocked on LaRinch's door to address the situation. She was then shot while her nine-year-old son was standing next to her. AJ's mom, Pamela Diaz, had this to say about her daughter's legacy and what her grandchildren are now forced to endure. She had it all. Yes. She had love. Yes, ma'am. She had compassion. Our 12-year-old blames himself for the death of his mother because he couldn't save her. He couldn't give her CPR. His words was, Grandma, Grandma, I couldn't save her. I tried to give her CPR, but I couldn't, I tried to give her CPR. A neighbor who lives across the street from the shooter shared her porch security footage from Friday at 9.05 p.m., showing Owen's 12-year-old son, Isaac, frantically running to her door after his mom was shot, begging for help. I'm going to caution you, this is tough to watch. Please. 
Joining me now is Kim Robinson-Jones, A.J. Owens' best friend and godmother to her children, and Owens family attorney, Anthony D. Thomas. Um, that was rough. Uh, Kim, I'm sorry you had to watch that. Um, but how, I mean, I, I already know how the, these sweet children are doing, but um, is, is the process of trying to get counseling, um, getting them, you know, Something to try to help them, because that little boy is a hero. He did everything he could have possibly done to try to save his mom. He's a, he's a hero. He tried so hard. Um, is there anything in place for them um, that's being offered, even by the city, to help them with counseling? And, Joy, just to piggyback on what you say with him being a, a hero, um, I, I just want to express that he was the, the bravest child that I ever know. He had to make every phone call to notify people of what happened to his mother. He called his grandmother. He called his aunts. He called his dad. I mean, I, I've, I've never, ever seen a child as brave as him. Um, so, yes, there are services that are in place for them right now. Um, trauma therapy, um, because this is a traumatic experience that they had to endure. And then also grief uh, therapy as well um, for all four uh, children. I mean, and he is 12. <laughs> Let's just remember, this is a little boy. He's 12 years old. Um let me go to you, Anthony. Um, I want to play the sheriff because the lack of an arrest right away after they knew that that happened to this poor woman, that she was killed in front of her kids and her nine-year-old was standing there, did not arrest this woman, um, Susan. Here is what Billy Woods, the sheriff, said about that. The way the laws are written in this state, and this is what people need to understand, is our hands are tied in law enforcement in these cases where we are instructed that we cannot make their arrest because we have to rule out whether the, the, um, the shooting was justified or unjustified. I mean, that is the fact of the Florida law, right, Anthony? Stand your ground is essentially shoot first, ask questions later. That's exactly right, Joy. So in in the state of Florida, if a person says that they choose stand your ground, it's sort of something that comes in the beginning and not necessarily what is considered an affirmative defense at the end. So the sheriff has the obligation, of course, to find probable cause based on his suspicion that, that you know, he's got some evidence there to um, charge. And so we believe he did have all of that information in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, he told me that he needed some witnesses. He got those witnesses and it was still some time before he even made that arrest. Um, we are thankful, though, that he did finally conclude to making the arrest. However, at the same time, it wasn't swift enough um, but for the family. Um, Kim Robinson Jones, um, uh, AJ was your best friend. Tell us about her. What was she like? AJ was just, she was beautiful. She was this beautiful inside and out. Like she would give the shirt off of, you know, her back for you. She would go, you know, all out if someone needed something. Um, just her infectious smile would just, you know, just light up a room. You know, I've known her since her first child, you know, was born. And, um, you know, just to see be a pivotal point in, with her children, you know, as she's, 
um, as you know, growing, you know, as they, they grew, it, it was just, she would do anything for them. You know, yeah. she loved them. She sacrificed for them. Um, you know, she would, she was everything that a friend could be. And I know there was a GoFundMe. Um, these children are going to need everything um, from their education taken care of to being taken care of at home. Uh, do you have that information that you can tell us how people can help this family? Yes, Joy. So there is actually a website that is set up for Adjica, and it is www.justiceforajowens.org. And on that website is a complete synopsis of how you can follow her story um, with also the GoFundMe link um, for the the children and their uh, needs. And then there's also a petition on there because the family, we are asking that these charges be upgraded from manslaughter to second degree murder. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we are out of time, uh, Anthony Thomas, but uh, is that can that be done? Is there a way to get those charges upgraded? Yes. Yeah, you definitely can. It is upon the state attorney to have that uh, prosecutorial discretion. Um, He can take whatever information he's gathered from the sheriff and then bring um, more charges later. We will put the website uh, for AJ uh, and her family up on our website. I'll also put it on my social so that people can find it. Kim Robinson-Jones and Anthony Thomas, thank you very much. We'll be right back. If you woke up this morning and your lungs were burning, you had a hard time breathing, or you looked up in the sky and felt as though you were in an apocalyptic doomsday movie, you were not alone. Right now, more than 400 wildfires are burning across Canada, which is experiencing its worst wildfire season in history. And that smoke is billowing its way all across the United States. Today, around 98 million people across 18 states, from New Hampshire all the way to South Carolina, were under air quality alerts, including New York City, which earlier today had the worst air quality in the world. The air is so bad, officials in the affected areas are urging people to stay inside, not partake in any outdoor activity, and start wearing N95 masks again. These kinds of weather phenomena are happening all around the globe, and it's only becoming more and more common, all because of climate change. And even as we barrel towards a climate catastrophe, many world leaders are still wary of any substantial climate action because of their unrelenting dependence on oil. And among the world's top oil suppliers is Canada, as well as the U.S. And, of course, there's Saudi Arabia. Their massive oil supply has made them one of the richest nations in the world. The Saudis are so rich off oil, they're actually buying up parts of the U.S., buildings, businesses, and now apparently golf as the PGA just announced their merger with Saudi Arabia's Live Golf franchise. All of this despite the fact that their government played a role in funding the September 11 terrorist attacks, as well as brutally murdering Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi and hacking up his body with a bone saw. These are the people who we are eating off, who are eating off our addition to our addiction to oil. And as long as we stay addicted, they will not only get richer and gobble up more and more of our industries and our culture. We will suffer the consequences as the planet we live on and that our children and grandchildren will inherit becomes even more dangerous to live in. You'd think it'd be a priority to keep breathing. And that is tonight's readout. 